Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the nuclear deal with Iran. So, Richard, we don't have the full text of the agreement that's been hammered out with Iran yet, but here's the basics of what we know. Iran is going to eventually get about $150 billion between sanctions relief and having funds unfrozen. It's going to ship most of its nuclear fuel out of the country and shut down about three-quarters of its centrifuges. The West gets inspections, but Iran has a pretty robust ability to block them. Uh, it looks like this is going to create the conditions to end the UN arms embargo on Iran and the ban on ballistic missiles eventually. It's certainly nothing here that ends their nuclear program, just some efforts to make it harder to get it up and running and also nothing really here to deal with Iran's support for terrorism, which the Obama administration has essentially treated as a discrete issue. Uh, still a little opaque, but knowing the little that we know at this point, what do you make of this? Well, I think it's a very bad deal um, from start to finish. Uh, there are several ways in which you could start to do this. One of them is you could start to see who's cheering and who's moaning. And when you start seeing dancing in the streets in Tehran and you see these avatars of peace, Bashar, Assad, and you know, Vladimir Putin praising the deed for preserving international stability, you know that you've got all the wrong friends in all the wrong places saying all the right things for the wrong cause. Um, on the other hand, if you look at Saudi Arabia and Israel, they're both in panic mode. If you look at most of the Republicans, I think they're deeply skeptical about the agreement. Uh, so on the Western side, the argument is, have we gotten close enough to the line that it's worth doing? On the other side, it's a no-brainer. So if you sort of figure out between the two goalposts, where is this ball lined up? Uh, the Iranians are basically in our red zone, you know, on the 14-yard line. Um, and we seem to say, well, that's just fine. We'll just make believe the field is only 20 yards long. So that's the first point. Um, the second point has to do with the way in which these negotiations start to take place. Over and over again, somebody says, well, you know, the Iranians really don't need any of these centrifuges to get nuclears for studying isotopes. They can ship them in. Oh, Iran finds that completely unacceptable. Okay, we've got to take that off the table. I can't recall a single time in these negotiations where the president said that something was completely unacceptable. Uh, so when you start seeing that, you know which way the tug of war is going. And then there's always the question as to when you put new obstacles on the table. The United States has a series of demands and whittles them down. Uh, the Iranians are very comfortable with bizarre-like negotiations with hostile parties. And so at the end of the day, they always come up with yet another condition about how the situation ought to work. And if you're going to see that, you just know which way these things are going to go. They're going to turn badly for you. And the third point I'd want to make right at the outset is the president, you know, particularly in the remarks reported this morning by um, his shill, which is, you know, Thomas Friedman in the New York Times. He says, well, we have to separate sanctions and violence and terrorism and so forth. This is crazy. I mean, this is not a situation in which you're going to get some release from the nuclear power. This is a situation where that's going to go on pretty much as is. But what's going to happen is going to be a lot more money. So the terrorism situation and the security situation is going to be even worse than it was before. It would be one thing to say, well, we're going to court 
of that thing off and not make it worse while we try to make this better. But it's another thing to say we're going to make that thing a lot worse while doing very little by the time you get through the details of the agreement and the various kinds of obstacles in place um, uh, to try and improve the situation on the nuclear power. Uh, the president's descriptions are, well, we have a snapback capacity. What is not stated is if Russia agrees or something of that sort. So I'm really very pessimistic about this situation. I've always regarded him as massively inept in foreign affairs, and I just regard this as sober confirmation of just how weak and clueless a president he turns out to have been. And to clarify there, when you refer to the snapback option, that's snapping back sanctions if Iran is not mm-hmm. abiding by the terms of the deal. Okay, so Richard, this deal now goes to Congress under this sort of bizarre arrangement that was hammered out that essentially turns the conventional constitutional treaty process on its head. Under the Constitution, the president needs a two-thirds majority in the Senate to ratify a treaty. Now, President Obama has said that this deal doesn't count as a treaty. Basically, under his precepts, doesn't need to go to Congress at all, but he's put together this process with Congress where they get 60 days to review the deal. If they vote it down, the president can then veto their decision, at which point they need a two-thirds majority to reject it. And you have some people saying, look, the president can't just erect an alternative structure that shifts the power dynamic in his favor. It's basically an inversion of the conventional process. So how does this work? Is it, is it legally permissible to upend the process here? Well, you know, it's a very interesting question, and I actually tried to find some materials on it which would give you some guidance. And by and large, the stuff that I found is essentially worthless in terms of interpretive (laughs) gloss on what's going on. There's one case called Crosby in which it said that the states don't have foreign policies and the president can override that. Well, you know, that's not very difficult. The entire constitution is designed to give the states uh, no role in international affairs unless until the president or the Congress want them to have. It. So that's not it. There is another Iranian case called Dames and Moore against Reagan, that is the old Secretary of Treasury under Ronald Reagan, and that talked about the ability to set up a claims process for people whose wealth was confiscated by Iran in 1979 when the Shah was thrown out. That doesn't deal with this at all. There is a standard piece of constitutional literature which says that there are treaties that go through this particular process and executive agreements that don't. Um, I just looked at the State Department blog on that and they said, well, there are two different ways in which you could do things, but they don't tell you what's what. The question then is how do you sort them out? And that's actually not as difficult as you might think, even though it's going to be a continuum. The usual rule with respect to anything is that the more formal or the rather the more serious and comprehensive the agreement, uh, the greater the need for formalities in order to make it go. And so if you're trying to figure out where this Iranian treaty actually fits on the treaty versus executive agreement, it bears very little with the thousands of agreements that are entered into routinely by the executive branch on you know which stoplights are going to be removed when an American embassy is located in Paris or something of the sort. This has to be regarded as a treaty. And if it's regarded as a treaty, what the Constitution says is the president has the power to make a treaty, um, but it's subject to the ratification of two-thirds of the Senate that happens to be present at the time that this is um, – that they concur. And you know that means he has to get 67 senators, seven, seven senators to make this work, and it also means that the House of Representatives is out of the process. 
So the question then is, can all three branches of government, even unanimously, agree to a process that is not found in the Constitution? It's a very profound question, to which I think the profound answer is they cannot. Um, this is an agreement which is designed to bind governments, and it can only bind governments if, in fact, they can't reverse it by unanimous agreement, or near unanimous agreement. And remember, this treaty has, for some of its provisions, a 25-year useful life, and the fact that this particular president is perfectly happy happy with the thing doesn't tell you as to whether or not a future president should be bound by something which is done through an illicit process. So I think, in fact, it's a very serious question as to whether or not this particular jerry-built situation works. There are going to be some questions as to who has standing to challenge it, but there's so many moving parts to this particular treaty that I would be surprised, even under our crazy standing law, um, if it would turn out that nobody can go into court and say, I'm not sufficiently affected by this, that I cannot sue, but it would take a long time to resolve that, and we don't have a long time. So uh, this process is going to be truly embroiled. If I was somebody hostile to this, I think you could file tomorrow a perfectly respectable lawsuit, uh, basically asking for a declaratory judgment uh, that the statute that was passed that set up this default framework, 60-week, you know, 60 days reversal, is flatly unconstitutional. The War Powers Act a resolution because it wasn't an act, is I think an instructive parallel and that was probably also unconstitutional to the extent that it tries to alter the distribution of the powers between the president and the Congress with respect to the declaration of war and the conduct of the war once it's declared. Who's the best position to do that, do you think? Who is most likely to overcome the difficulties around standing on a case like this? Well, you have to know whose ox is going to be gored. Generally speaking, people are not going to give standing to simply members of the Congress or the Senate for doing all of this stuff. But, you know, I could see somebody saying, look, this is exclusively the prerogative of the Senate. Um, the House is now horning in on it. That's an unconstitutional inversion of our prerogatives. And we're a small enough body that any one of us should be able to uh, take it up. Uh, if there's somebody whose contract is going to be terminated by virtue of the fact that the treaty will go into effect, that contract may give them grounds to challenge the situation at hand. Um, my own view is, and it's always been this, is that when you're dealing with a question of whether or not the United States government has conformed to its powers or has acted in an illegal fashion, any citizen or taxpayer should be allowed to challenge things on the grounds that they're ultra-virus, that is beyond the power of the various organs of government to put them into place. That view has not generally been accepted, but it has been accepted in some of the religion cases. Look, if the treaty power is underdefined, the standing power has, or the standing question has been litigated so many times in such a confused fashion that in the end there's always bits and pieces of existing case law that can work on both sides. So... Um, <laughs> It's not a real obvious question, but note, there's no way you're going to get the Supreme Court in the middle of the summer uh, to give a final resolution of this particular question uh, in 60 days from two days ago. So, I mean, I, I think that that particular option is really extremely complicated. Uh, it is likely to have to be resolved by political means, but if in fact the president, by and large, let's say uh, there's 62 people who vote against it, the president then vetoes it and then they fail to override it by getting the extra five votes that they need, I have no doubt that somebody will be able to find a way to say that the whole process turns out to be illicit and medias race. Um, this is a classic illustration of how every democratic internal institution and all our foreign affairs seem to have fallen on a collapse. This is our international war version of the Greek fiasco in Europe. 
Richard, as you know, I'm not telling you anything you're unaware of, but you tend to be considerably more hawkish than most of your fellow libertarians. It's true on this issue too. Let me read you something from Sheikha Dalmia writing over at, at Reason, probably the most prominent libertarian publication. This is from yesterday. Quote, security hawks will no doubt pan the Obama administration's nuclear deal with Iran. They'll say that it won't prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon and they'll be right. They'll say that it'll help Iran build its conventional weapons program and they'll be right. They'll say that Iran will never fully honor its word even as the West lifts sanctions against it and they'll probably be right about that too. But here's the bottom line. This option is better than anything they've put on the table. How do you respond to that line of argument? Well, they have to explain to me why it's better than the status quo ante, and there's not a single argument in what she says that tells that. At this particular point in time, what you can do is you can mute conventional terrorist kinds of situations. At this particular time, you at least can keep the Saudis and the Israelis on our particular side and not lose them. At this particular time, you don't have to worry about an expanded force of ISIS committing all sorts of terror in the Middle East. At this point in time, there's at least some check on what Assad um, can do inside Syria. Uh, when you go to the other situation, um, the president says he has a nuclear option at the back of this particular game, that is to go in and attack the forces. He has that right now. Um, and what he's going to do, in effect, he's engaging in the kind of um, multilateralism, which is absolutely destructive to what I've always called the Pax Americana. We try to give guarantees to people so that they will fall into line with us and not go off on independent wars of their own. And this is as clear in situation of leading from behind. We put our hands in a charge in a, in a panel which has the Soviets, it has the Chinese on it, it has the Iranians on it. God knows what the Europeans are going to do under these situations because in security matters, they turn out to be hopeless. They are always tempted by the prospect of trade um, in the short run to get rid of the long-term grades. She better explain to us why it is that she thinks this thing is an improvement. And you can't do this by saying it's going to slow the Iranian thing up by a little bit. Uh, she says they're probably going to cheat. That's certain that they're going to cheat. They do nothing but cheat. Uh, and if you look at what their general intentions are, it's a little bit like reading Mein Kampf and then saying Hitler really doesn't mean that. He really does want to exterminate Israel as a separate nation and to kill Jews wherever he can find them. And, you know, the president sort of treats that as own oh, kind of bathroom talk, little boy talk or whatever it is. I suspect that you take these things deadly seriously. Um, the American foreign policy has managed to do more damage to the peace and stability of the world in the last six years than in the previous 60 years since the end of World War II. So final question, uh, tapping into some of what you've said already. On previous episodes of this show, you have been very forceful in your criticism of the president's foreign policy and your insistence, as you mentioned a moment ago, that we need to sort of rediscover that spirit of, of Pax Americana. Where does this deal fit in that framework? That is to say, do you regard this as just one more example of the wrongheadedness of this administration on foreign affairs, or is this one qualitatively different? Well, it's bigger than any other. I mean, what it is, in effect, is it shows um, that we are prepared to capitulate in advance. Um, just remember what happened in Syria. We put a red line down. Of course, we don't honor the red line down. What do we do? We announce that we're going to ask the Soviet, the Russians rather, no longer Soviets, um, for their various kinds of assistance. We hear that there is destruction of chemical weapons and they magically reappear in, in battle. That's exactly what's going on here. Uh, the president has announced that he thinks that the Russians have been helpful in these negotiations. My response is they've been helpful 
helpful to the Russians in these negotiations and that Mr. Putin sits there wondering what he did to deserve this good fortune in having a complete amateur run American foreign affairs. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.